Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And welcome to the New Statesman Podcast. Welcome. Um, yeah, I feel welcomed. Good. Uh, I want to talk to you about the yacht because I know um, that you love the yacht and because you're a patriot, Stephen. That's the thing I've always said about you. You're not a... Mo- what is it? A Bramona? A, a, it's a, a Ramona, I think. Yeah, except the Daily Mail decided to turn it into a Bramona because what you really want to do is gild that lily. Um, it's such a good joke. Yeah. Um, I mean, so obviously I am a, I, you know, I whine about lots of things, um, but, uh, but the referendum is one. Um, so in that case, you haven't been following it. And actually, if you have subscribed to my excellent morning email, you will not have been following it because I am boycotting uh, the yacht. Um, the Telegraph has a campaign, and I promise I am not paraphrasing or joking or in any way over-egging this particular pudding. Everything I'm about to say is 100% true campaigning for the restoration of the Royal Yacht Britannia in order to, and again, I'm not joking, encourage trade with post-Brexit Britain. Right, so presumably the thinking here is that, like, you're going to have someone like in, I don't know, Canada, right, who's like, hey, I'm a bit worried than this is a Canadian accent. That, um, <laughs> What's this Brexit aboot? Than, uh, than, uh, than, you know, since Brexit, Britain hates foreigners. But I can't work out how you've got that impression, but... But now I see they've got a yacht. And a yacht is, of course, the international symbol for trade. For we're open for business. Yeah. I mean, I guess... No, actually, I've thought about it. There is a way it's not stupid, right? And then if you are looking to sell someone something and you see that they have bought a yacht called the Royal Britannia, right? You know that that person is a mug, right? (laughs) They are ready to... That person is begging you. To take their money, right? So here's the thing I feel like the the cost of the yacht is 175 million pounds. And I just feel it's one of those things where that's a lot of money to me. But in terms of government spending, it's not a lot of money. If it makes them happy, I say give them the yacht. But they've already got to destroy the economy. Yeah, but they go, okay, you get the yacht, we get like access to the single market. I mean, okay, I mean, fair enough. Membership of the single market, because as we all know that there is no such thing as access to the single market. It's just something that's said by people to make them sound like they're in favour of the single market without actually having to do anything. I mean, it's a bit like saying access to a cash machine, right? Everyone has access to a cash machine, but sadly, some of us realise it's midway through the month and there ain't nothing coming out of that (laughs) cash machine. And that, to be honest, is where Britain is heading as far as the... uh, the single market is concerned. The thing I found surreal about, so yeah, this yacht has got so far advanced and there was a parliamentary debate. At the same time, it must be noted as people were debating the ongoing crisis in Syria. The thing I find weird is, so it was a combination of like the usual suspects, you know, the the kind of Tory MPs who look like they represent Adam's family central. Or the kind of people who want like a Margaret Thatcher... Yeah, everything, right? They just want a Margaret Thatcher statue. They want a yeah. Margaret Thatcher day. They want a Margaret Thatcher hat. They want a Margaret yeah. Thatcher mug. Yeah, but yeah. and then Gerald um, um, Kaufman stood up and said, "No, sorry, I'm getting my Gerald Gerald's. How- Howard. I'm getting my Gerald's in a twist," uh, and said that the day that Britannia was scrapped was quote the worst day of his life. Which I mean, you know, is it's a nice good, problem to have. <laughs> it's a great reflection um, on the rest of your life. But um, the thing I find surreal about it is one of the MPs who is really pushing this is Jake Berry, who is not the kind of 
Union um, Jack underpanted. Yeah, and the other campaign that he is running is, um, and I'm going to forget the exact details, but um, to get justice for the person who um, whose whose death, uh, which has never been adequately solved, inspired the um, the song uh, "Tell Me Why," um, which was a homophobic killing. Right? Yeah, it was, and, and basically the the reason one of the reasons why it appears there was no justice is the investigating force at the time kind of went. Yeah, gay had it coming, and it's one of those things where it's like, wait. So the continuum of your two policy priorities as a backbench MP are writing a historic injustice, bringing back a yacht, massive boat. I mean, that is if that is not someone containing multitudes, I don't know what is. But that kind of, I mean, to me, that yacht debate symbolised where we're kind of at with with Brexit because it's just this sort of we've all got to work together, but. Any tiny success there is of Brexit is just a kind of an opportunity to go like, ah, we told you it'd be fine. Ah, you're all whinging. I just, it's a very odd, well, I suppose it's symptomatic generally of, I feel like, our government's Brexit negotiating strategy, which is basically, they don't believe that anyone on the other side of them has any wants or opinions of their own. I think um, Raphael Baer brought this out in his column very well this morning that, you know, and we've been saying on the podcast for a while, there are 27 countries that will have thoughts, you know, what Eastern Europe feels it wants out of, um, you know, Britain leaving the single, um, single market or the European Union is very different to maybe what we want and other people are people too yeah it, yes I mean in some ways I think this has probably been the best week for I don't just want to say Remainers because actually one of the things the government has successfully done is it has framed this idea that everyone who voted Brexit wanted to leave the single market wanted now I think a lot of people who voted to leave who thought we would stay in the single market were incredibly naive mm-hmm uh, however, but there is a big caucus, isn't there? There's yeah. the Daniel Hannan, Steve Hilton, you know, Andrew Lillico kind of caucus of of people who were pretty senior in in in, in stuff that they said, who maintained throughout actually that they want they wanted to stay in the single market. Now, I think that those people are deeply disingenuous because they knew that their vision of Brexit would not get a majority, right? So they let Dominic Cummings and various others pursue a much more Let's just say it's xenophobic strategy, right? There was one about based around the idea that Turkey had six million, 76 million people were coming over based around the idea that, you know, our border was moving to Syria, basically. You know, things that were very much a, like a fear campaign. Yeah, and I think to to sound a rare note of sympathy uh, with our, our beloved government, uh, the one thing I think is tricky is it is really hard to disentangle the fact that the official campaign position of Vote Leave was leaving meant leaving the single market. In terms of what they were saying on immigration, you have to leave the single market. On the other hand, the big control for whether you voted to remain or to stay or to leave was not if you thought immigration was bad. It was if you thought that you would be worse off mm. if you left the EU. And some of the kind of fact that there were senior leavers going, I'm for the single market, kind of did muddy those waters enough, I think, then people kind of thought they could have it both ways. The difficulty is, is I sort of think that people will continue to say that they want it both ways until the point where it becomes clear they can't have it both ways. But you probably have to get all the way to the end of the road for that to happen. The, and the other problem is, I mean, in an, one of the one of the interesting things that's been completely discredited by the Brexit vote uh, is um, this idea that the free market is a great judge of things. The current uh, the pound rebounded slightly because the government went oh yeah sure we will have a debate on article 50 i don't really understand why that happened in some places it's because people were clearly shorting the pound but 
it also yeah Morgan Stanley seemed to be suggesting that actually this meant that that maybe exit from the single market wouldn't happen and yeah may- I think Rob Hutton of Bloomberg had a, a good line on this which is like you know market volatility every time a prime minister sneezes like welcome to life in an emerging market yeah. I mean I think that's the problem isn't it is that one of the great things that Britain offered people and through the European Union of people was a, a, a boring essentially quite a boring economy mm. and now we're entering a period of huge volatility where people just don't know what the rules are or are going to be for the next couple of years um one bright spot from from a left wing perspective is that um, the reshuffle uh, of of St Jeremy, uh, long may he reign over us, appointed Sir Keir Starmer, uh, QC, former director of public prosecutions, to be the shadow secretary for um, the minister, whatever it is, the Ministry of State for leaving the EU. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the Brexit department, and uh, he's been in the Commons, looking, you know, as you would expect, like somebody who can talk quite well about very boring bits of procedural constitutional detail. That's the joy, great joy of being a lawyer. And I do feel that, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a stealth Emily Thornberry fan. Um, I think she's very clever and gets on top of briefs that she's given very quickly. I actually think that's, that, that is a, 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 as a fighting team, actually, the two of them are going to be able to cause a lot of trouble on the fine-grained detail of some of this stuff. Yeah, I think, I mean... So Labour have released 172 questions for the government on Brexit. And you see that and you think, I see what you're doing here, but there's going to be a lot of filler in here, isn't there? And actually, it is, you know, all killer, no filler. Some of the questions, if you read them, will depress you because you kind of think about what you think the government's actual answer might be. Um, but they have, yeah, on, on Brexit now, Jeremy has got a, a great underrated uh, in my... Well, obviously, Keir Starmer is, is highly rated by most people, Um it's interesting, of course, that Emily Thornberry, also an eminent QC for a London seat, is less well-rated by Keir Starmer. I can't think of any reason that could be. Um, but um, Yes, I mean, I, let's have a, in the secrecy of the podcast, Catacomb, let's have a shout-out to the sketch writer who this week referred to Angela Rayner, Emily Thornberry and Diane Abbott as three of Labour's dimmest bulbs, you know, talking about somebody with an eminent legal career. And Diane Abbott, whatever you think about, has a degree from Cambridge, from, yeah. coming from a relatively challenging background. And also, and I know I've said this before, and I apologise for boring on about this, but any argument that Diane is thick has to explain away the fact that most pe- most black women who were born to a welder and a nurse in the early 50s did not go to Cambridge and did not become the first black woman ever elected uh, and, and, to, the, to the House of Commons. So the argument that she's stupid or bad at politics, it, you've got a very big data point that you have to come up with a, well, well, an explanation for. So why for. is she Shadow Home Secretary yeah. then? I mean, yeah, I know, I find this I find this deeply, deeply irritating as a, as a concept. I mean, it, it happened all the time to Harriet Harman as well. You had, you know, Harriet Harperson, she's shrill, she's this, she's that, she's got this. Well, do you know what? If you judge her by what she went into politics to achieve, she can point to the Equalities Act and go, hey, look, I did that. Like, find me, find me the great Ian Duncan Smith achievement. Find me the great Chris Grayling achievement. You know, find me any number of men on the Tory front bench who have not even by their own estimation never mind any kind of idea about objectivity done anything you know as well anyway that's our that's our rant portion over let's talk to actually no let's continue the rant portion by talking about the american election because the 538 polls plus page has become my happy place again whereas it was not before for many weeks over the summer yep um trump uh has had a fairly bad uh couple of weeks a tape emerged uh of him uh, 
saying remarks that I can't repeat in order to maintain our our um our universal rating. But uh, I mean, he did say. I mean, the things that you can report at least are the fact that he said, you know, I just some I just kissed them. You know, beautiful women are attracted to me. Like you know, if you're basically if you're famous, they'll let you do anything that you want, right? He was yeah. admitting that he has no concept of consent because celebrity is greater than that. Yeah. Um. And actually, the the thing I yeah, and the interesting is this is. Well, depends how cynical you are about the average member of the Republican Party. This set of remarks about him, uh, him groping women, uh, seems to have triggered an outrage in Republicans than comments about Megyn Kelly having blood coming out of her wherever, comments about uh, in highly sexualized comments about his own daughter, about thinking women that women who are having abortion should be punished. Women, although that, know, I can't imagine that upsetting many of the GOP. But... Talking about, you know, was it a former Miss World? How she got fat? Yeah, his uh, housekeeping, not, Miss Piggy. Not to mention his uh, uh, horrendous record of far right racism. Now, interestingly, uh, for some reason, these tapes have upset the Republican Party. Now, there are lots of explanations for this. I think, and actually, there's a, mo- a measure of truth in all of these. Uh, one of my Twitter followers, who I'm afraid I've got a complete back on the name, made the, the interesting point that, that it seems to have annoyed a lot of them and it's a married woman because it's someone else's property. And I think that is an element of how the Republicans are reacting. The other isn't his polls have been getting worse and worse. And I think a lot of people have fight in marginal seats and close Senate races have gone, oh, brilliant, here's my opportunity to press the eject a seat from this campaign i think it's i mean it's i I find the whole thing absolutely mesmerizing because it and it's so much the story of this year that parties can get kind of taken over and whether or not you think that's a good thing or bad thing i say in the case of jeremy corbyn lots of people would argue they think it's a very good thing that you can kind of come from a, a membership position and essentially sweep away sort of gatekeeping structures that have been put in place um in Trump, it's more like a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. You know, this is a person who's been a registered Democrat before, who's also been an independent. This is somebody who, you know, the, the, the GOP has spent the last 20 years talking about values and about Christianity and about, um, you know, about kind of the, the scourge of godlessness and stuff like that. And you've got a guy who who doesn't strike me as uh, as, as overtly, deeply religious. And then, you know, as, as admitted, you know, as just openly rated women out of 10, has kind of boasted about his sexual promiscuity. And it's really fascinating to see the way that they just kind of, he just bulldozed through that, um, that initial Republican primary field. But what he did is the same thing that other politicians have done and i think corbyn has done from the other side is that he had he has a, a smaller group of supporters maybe 35 percent but his supporters were, were loved him right you didn't that he he I, what, the lesson of this year is that a band of enthusiastic people will have you know in in these structures will kind of outweigh lots of people who feel kind of meh i don't think that's true uh for a couple of reasons one trump is winning over the existing republican electorate uh, what's happened is they've had generations of saying Obama is illegitimate, of, of 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 blowing a dog whistle on race issues, and eventually a very big scary dog has turned up and eaten them all. Um, but the Republican, the, the structure of the US primaries is designed to allow you to do what Trump is doing. I think there are a couple of differences with what has happened with the Labour Party. I think one of the things everyone can agree on, right, regardless of whether or not you're happy it's happened or not, isn't it is exceptionally foolish if you are an MP to use your nomination right um, for 
someone who you are not willing to serve in the shadow cabinet of mm. and who you don't agree with on politics. Not least because actually it's a deeply unhelpful thing to do. If you're, It cuts both ways. I think if you're one of the 35 MPs who nominated Jeremy Corbyn and you have been talking to the press about how he's bad and you're refusing to serve, you've basically driven the car into the mud and then walked away from it going, not my problem, who knows how the car got there. Um, but the Labour Party does have, and you know, this much maligned system brought in by Ed Miliband that actually I'm still a huge fan of, um, was designed to ensure that whoever won, they ought to have a, enough support to form a shadow cabinet, right? Mm. 35 MPs, that is a front bench. You know, it might be a, you know, a minor, very embattled one, but that ought, Jeremy ought to have been able to form a cabinet from the people who nominated him, except some of them were, were, were playing were silly, silly biscuits to maintain <laughs> our... That's rating. great. We're really um, yeah, holding out for that U rating. Yeah, I do, no, I do agree with that, but I do think that, that we have got a general sort of suspicion about, about institutions and the idea of the concept of kind of expertise and of gatekeeping versus... I mean, this is, but this is, and there's this come, I know everything comes back to Brexit, but this comes back to Brexit. This is the argument that people are making. It's the will of the people. Well, it's, yeah, a very broadly expressed will of the people, but we still live in a parliamentary democracy. I think if there's anything I've learned from this year, it's that I will never again support any referendum, even if it's a referendum on like whether I should be queen. I mean, I don't think I would win that, so I definitely wouldn't support that. But you know what I mean? Even if it's a referendum that I think that my side could win, I just think referendums are a horrific, blunt instrument. I think um, Anna Manon at uh, Labour Party Conference described them as poison in the body body politic. And I think that's the problem. They just deliver you a very unnuanced opinion and don't tell you who is, should be in charge of carrying it out. So I was against holding an EU referendum because I thought it would be lost. Um, but... I actually think they are a useful constitutional tool, particularly for something like, say, the Brexit vote, right, where you do give up a significant measure of sovereignty if you're in the EU. The problem, actually, I don't think is the then the referendum was a blunt instrument. The problem was one that Vote Leave uh, ran a campaign where they didn't really have to, where we don't really know what the mandate was for as opposed to the Scottish experience, where there were lots of things in the Scottish white paper that I think mm. were wishful thinking. But you can kind of see how what people's reasonable expectations about what independence would look like. It's much harder to do that with, uh, with the Brexit debate. The second problem is that the people who have supported Brexit at a senior level, it turns out, have a naive understanding of the trade-offs involved, right? You're effectively going to give up a measure of freedom, right? You either give up the freedom of having money, a fairly important cornerstone of freedom is the ability to do what you want with your freedom, or you give up a measure of your freedom in order to maintain mm. your financial strength, right? That is the actual trade-off. But the problem isn't that we had a crude referendum. The problem is there are a bunch of people in the Conservative Party who refuse to accept then that is the trade-off you have to make. And you can you can work out how you negotiate Brexit if depending on which one of those you, you choose between. You can't negotiate Brexit and you can't navigate the post-Brexit waters if your response to that is to go, oh no, there's there's no there's no choice to be made here because that's simply not Stop true. Stop talking down the economy, you Bramona. Yep. Well, that takes us neatly back to the start. So we've moaned about it. We have Bramoned extensively. We have Bramoned And there'll be more Bramoning in the weeks ahead. They don't. 
Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And together we host the New Statesman's pop culture podcast, Seriously. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can get this episode and everything else we've done on newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And now it's time to go down the line to the lobby with George. Hi, Stephen. Hi, George. So the first... PMQs of the post-conference season was unsurprisingly dominated by Brexit and Jeremy Corbyn tried to pin Theresa May down on some of the detail and also landed some blows on her, highlighting obviously the fall in sterling and the other negative economic signals, uh, quoted Ken Clark quite smartly saying the pound's going south because absolutely nobody knows what we're going to do. And... Theresa May doesn't yet command the chamber in the way that David Cameron often did. Corbyn clearly seems more relaxed against her. And he referred to a shambolic Tory Brexit, which I thought was a smarter phrase than hard Brexit, because I think that risks making May seem tough and and actually might quite please uh, those who voted leave. And after Corbyn identified this target, you do feel that there's the potential for him to put her under some significant pressure in future weeks, given the increasing um, rebellion on, on the Tory benches. Yeah, it was... I th- My feeling is it's probably Corbyn's best performance. The question is, is how much do you think it is that uh, he's getting better, and how much is it that Theresa May is a less formidable opponent than David Cameron after six years of doing it as PM, and what, four years of doing it as leader of the opposition? You know, mm. you know a decade of experience behind him. I think Corbyn has undoubtedly improved. I think it's notable that he quotes Tory opponents more often now, which is always a good tactic to use against the leader because one thing we know is that voters don't like divided parties and there are almost always Tory divisions to to pick on. And then he's also stopped doing um, questions from the public, um, or at least doesn't very rarely now, which I think has given his performances more coherence too. Uh, but... It will take time, I think, for, for Theresa May to establish herself. And, and, and in some ways, she is weaker than, than Cameron was simply because she, she was elected neither by her party nor, nor the country. And Corbyn had quite a nice riposte when Theresa May sardonically remarked that she was pleased to see him back at the dispatch box. And he says, well, I've been, I was elected by far more people than you were. Yeah, um, it, yeah, it was a more polished performance. What about uh, Theresa May's performance? It was not great i think it's fair to say it was a bit robotic yes yeah i mean she is in this slightly strange phase where the referendum was recent enough for her to say i am just focused on delivering the people's will and although labor is not pushing for a second referendum as she wrongly suggested during during the session there are some who who are of course and that's that is a strong line for her to use and I think some Remainers have undermined their side by essentially suggesting the result should be overturned I also think those who want to stay in in the single market to retain full access or full membership however you you define it and essentially accept free movement will continue are in a difficult place because I think uh, under any reasonable interpretation of the result the public wants control of a free movement I think it is difficult to going against that on the other hand polls also show that they don't want the economy undermined they don't want to be poorer yes. um and in some cases they do want access to the single market so 
all politicians are grappling with the problem of the public wanting to have have the Brexit cake and eat it. Yeah. Um, on, on the kind of point about May's performance, obviously uh, the Tory party has been more restive this week than in any week since she became Labour leader. What's behind that? Why are Conservative MPs getting more punchy? I think it was the signal at the Conservative conference that she would prioritise uh, retaining... Uh, winning back control of free movement and um, and removal from from EU jurisdiction, um, stopping uh, making UK courts uh, sovereign again. That uh, that she would pr- 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 sorry prioritise that over the economy. I think that was a very a negative, and it's reflected in in, in the fall in sterling, which I think is now at one hundred and twenty six year low. That's that's rattled the markets as well as as rattling MPs. But it's interesting. There is a softer side here, and it's in a, and to May's position. So, for instance, she hasn't ruled out budget contributions by mm. uh, the UK to the EU quite deliberately, um, because that is one of the few bargaining chips that the UK has. I think it's currently the second largest net contributor, eight point five billion a year. And she did say in her speech on Brexit to the conference, there will be some give and take, and it's perhaps unsurprising that she didn't think her first Conservative conference was the best place to hint at the compromises, the concessions. She was much clearer about what she hoped to get back from the EU than than the concessions that would have to be made. But they clearly will be there. Yeah, right. And we'll see what exact shape they take over the coming days, weeks and months. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is... Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hi, I'm Stephanie. And I'm John. And we host Skylines, a city metric podcast where every two weeks we talk about cities, maps and the human world. Whether the Olympics are good for cities, what it's like to be a woman in a city. And we've had guests like Lauren Elkin, Caroline Criado-Perez. And Neil Codlin, keyboard player from Suede, because I'm nearly cool now. Tune in on iTunes or on Acast. Check it out. And now we're joined for the first time on the New Statesman podcast. No, have you? Have we, have we this is the due second to our, time. Yeah, catacomb before <laughs> um, uh, by Amelia Tate, who writes about technology for the New Statesman website. We wanted to talk about something you wrote this week about YouTubers. Now, for those of us who are positively, <coughs> all right, coffee. Sorry, <laughs> it's been you've had like the statute of limitations on you coughing in podcasts <laughs> has run out, Stephen. I will tolerate it no longer. Yeah, sit there until you choke. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I wanted to have you down here to talk about something you wrote about YouTubers. Now, for those of us who are positively geriatric, I YouTube is the place where I look at Dr. Pimple Popper and really not a lot else. So um, NSPCC have finally put out guidelines warning about kind of fan relationships with, with some of these people. But first of all, okay, what is, who or what is a YouTuber? Let's start at the real, real basics. Yeah, well, YouTube was founded in 2005, but YouTubers only really came about in you know, in 2007, 2008. So before then, it was your pimple popping and your cat videos. But very quickly, there were these people that became massive media personalities um, who gained thousands, millions of followers um, and who lots of people loved, even though most of us weren't aware that they were a big deal. Um, and then within a couple of years, it actually became a job for many people. So they gave up their main main jobs and they could make money off the adverts on their videos full time. So can I tell you, can I run you past the ones that I've heard of? Yeah. Mr. Stampy Head? I am not familiar with the work. The Mr. guy Stampy who Head. does Minecraft videos. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's his name. Uh, I'm going to maybe I'm going to use Mr. Pointy Head, who used to be on <laughs> Xbox Live. But anyway, uh, 
Alfie Dean. Alfie Dean? Alfie Days? Is Al- ah, there we go. See, yeah. see this yeah. is gra- grandma besides <laughs> the YouTube. Um, Zoella. Zoella. See, er- Zoella is the one that everybody knows because she has had two best-selling books now and a makeup range. And she's probably, you know, the biggest icon of what a YouTuber can be. But there are thousands of other young male YouTubers that aren't as big but do still have, you know, female young female fans who love them as much as they would love One Direction. So the average, U- the average working YouTuber, right, how much how much are they pulling in 15k 10k it really is something that youtube tries to keep quite secret um but you know zoella is a millionaire uh, she owns a mansion she can earn you know 10 to 20,000 pounds just for mentioning a single product in a video um she did a video a video not long ago about her perfect like summer picnic with her friends and it was so <laughs> aspirational it made me almost want to cry they were there there was bunting they were like picnic hampers there were incredibly photogenic people eating a single sort yeah, of strawberry dipped in chocolate it really brings home like you know did you even get a free mattress <laughs> no i know what you mean you and i should get should get more moolah for our uh, for our endorsements but the other thing is i find really interesting about it is exactly what you say the sort of the fact that this is a completely kind of subterranean world and they don't they this is a kind of really big shift in culture i think is that they're just not seen as being something that like oh every, you know something that's on tv if it's on itv or bbc one that's kind of a thing that's kind of there's a common access to that as a piece of culture right and as a kind of cultural critic or newspaper writer or magazine writer you can write about it but these guys in the same way that where video games i guess were 10 years ago it's sort of presumed that there's no commonality like no there's not enough of a big community of people who will have heard of these guys that it's worth writing about them but that's not true is it i mean some of them have got millions yeah of they do and i think it actually has got to the point where people do feel more comfortable writing about them and talking about them but the problem with that is we've been so focused for years on going oh look at this this is new to actually stop and think hang on a minute should this be allowed should there be rules and should there be regulations and this is where the nspcc comes in saying that um YouTubers need to be careful about the relationships that they have with their fans. Now, they said this on Sunday night, and it was, you know, four years ago now that the first scandal broke on YouTube where a YouTuber had um, been texting, you know, sexually explicit messages to his young fans. So it's quite a late, because we're so busy thinking, oh, what's going on? Who are these people? We're not regulating it in any way. I guess they're in the place where maybe footballers were five, ten years ago when you had yeah. endless stories about footballers going out to clubs and kind of just, you know, rampaging around the place. So um, let me get this straight. What So the NSPC's guidelines, um, what, so they basically said, you know, if you're thinking of dating an underage fan, don't, K-thanks, buy the <laughs> NSPCC? I mean, it was just a statement that they put out to the BBC that said, that warned YouTubers to think more about it. So it's not necessarily about... Um, you know, just the sexual relations with fans. It's about just understanding that there's a position of power there. Because YouTubers started as people in their bedrooms just making videos, a lot of them don't understand that they are idolised by millions of people and the power that they have over it. If they don't view themselves as a traditional celebrity, they don't understand um, I guess it's the same position that you find, you know, there's, there's uh, continual scandals in America over kind of interns in, in Congress and stuff like that. You know, you have a kind of pool of people who are younger, more junior to an appeal of people who are, you know, with power and responsibility and money. And that, you know, that's not a dynamic that's a particularly new one. But I guess a really interesting thing is, and, and you bring this out in your piece, that you these are kind of celebrities with just like instant access to people right and and actually yeah. the new way that celebrities constituted now it's not unusual for a youtuber to 
tweet back to their fans or you know go, you know talk re- reply to people straight away they're just a lot more immediately present exactly yeah because it just sprung up organically as a job it doesn't have the traditional you know they don't have pr well they do have pr teams now but they didn't have pr teams back in the times of this scandal or you know people to tell them even how to act or what to do they were just suddenly famous and and probably you know some of them weren't aware of of what they were doing wrong but others of course they can prey on people if they see that there's an opportunity there. And the yeah. brand also re- relies on them seeming attainable, right? That's the mm-hmm. other thing, is that yeah. they're not supposed to be some celebrity miles away that's completely untouchable. They're supposed to be kind of young, kind of, you know, not, you know, they're not, they're not, they're, they're not, because they're not famous for anything particularly. Their brand is being like you, but slightly better. Yeah, exactly. Like something stupid, like 15% of kids want to be a YouTuber when they grow up. Like you not only want them to be like you, you want to become them. I did a, a mentoring session for Women of the World last year on the London Eye. It was last year the year before and uh, I was talking to a 15 year old who's at school at East London and I said you know what you know what do you want to do when you you know as a career and she said yeah I want to be a YouTuber or uh, failing that a dentist <laughs> and I That's thought a that was a perfect like encapsulation of actually we know from all the research that young people are genuinely you know generally drink less take fewer drugs have fewer mm. sexual partners so there was this kind of like oh yeah no I want to be a rock star I think when you're, or... you're impugning dentists right I mean like they get a lot of oral no, I'm oh, sorry. I think you're going to do a drug scare because technically, if you wanted to be get you know get high, being yeah. a dentist is a pretty. Don't do that though; it's probably against the dental mm. council regulations. I have three interns who write my jokes. They're not doing a good Sack job. Them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that you know you. I mean, so there haven't been that many prosecutions about this, but this is a kind of long-standing rumbling thing, and it's part of a. I think actually to bring in Donald Trump, this is kind of where we're at with this conversation now is about people recognizing the the things that aren't necessarily in and of themselves actionable or, you know, that are immediately apparent to people that they're illegal. I mean, you write about someone getting interviewed and being asked, you know, well, why didn't you stop him? Why didn't you say, you know, why didn't you break off contact? Like, why didn't, when did you realize this was a bad relationship? The way that that kind of those, you know, sexual harassment or these unequal sexual relationships develop in small, tiny incremental stages. And you can never point to the thing that's the bad thing that happened, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, some of the cases are sexual assault, but most of them are emotional manipulation of of young women who don't really understand that if they've kind of gone willingly to meet a YouTuber, that what happens next is in their control, that they can say no. They don't understand the ins and outs of consent and things like that. So education as well as these NSPC guidelines is very, very important. I mean, is there anything different to it uh, from kind of the groupie culture of the 60s or 70s? Um, That's an interesting question. I mean, I guess no, in the sense that the same thing is happening when you look at it. But I think... Um, I think it just with traditional celebrities, the fact that they had those people around them, you know, PR teams and advisors and, and people controlling... Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? I th- yeah, no, I think it's a really open question yeah. with, with so many of these things about... I, I always find that when you're talking about things that look like internet phenomenon is to say, is yeah, this exactly. just an existing phenomenon but that is now happening by people when people are sitting in front of their computers? And you look at... Someone said to me, a researcher who works on trolling once, you don't hear much about heavy breathing phone calls anymore, right? Mm. It's still the same behaviour. It's just that... In the case of trolling, it's not only just the same behaviour in a different means, it's also that the means itself has made it easier. Like, if you were a heavy yeah. breathing phone caller, you could only phone up and, like, masturbate down the phone to, you know, a certain number of women per night. Now you can really hit a lot of them, you know, with a, with a couple, you know, a few dozen tweets. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Whereas this has always happened. Now these YouTubers are so much more accessible to their fans or they can access their fans so much you know, easier. Meeting and greeting with your fans is a big part of YouTube culture on a one-on-one -on -one level, not in a traditional celebrity book signing way or anything like that. So I think that that has really reframed just how possible it is and how much can go wrong. My final question is this. So I don't really understand what the people do on YouTube, but could you make Steven into a YouTube star? Like, how easy is it to become a YouTube star? See, back in 2007, it would have been very easy, and I'm sure that we'd be sat here talking about Steven and how great he is and all his YouTube videos. But now, YouTube is actually quite a closed-off community. And if you made friends with Zoella and she gave you a shout-out in her video, then I think you could be a YouTube star. But right now, it actually... Funnily enough, from what we've been talking about, it has become much more closed off, much more mainstream and, and difficult to get access to, yeah. Well, okay. I guess I have to stick with the podcast then. Or if any of our listeners know Zoella, <laughs> do drop Stephen's name because I think he could flog merch. Yeah, definitely. Bunting. Um, thanks very much for joining <laughs> us, you. Amelia. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And you ask us uh, a kind of semi a simple one, which is, should Stop the War be protesting outside the Russian embassy? So uh, Boris Johnson did one of his epic uh, killer zingers, seemingly forgetting that he's foreign secretary rather than a telegraph columnist, and said that they should um, because of uh, Russian actions in Syria. Stephen, I, I, I sort of object to the premise of the question, which is not a great place to start. Like, I do think that there, we, I think that, we should be more vocal about what Russia is doing in Syria. And I certainly think that that area of the left is much more willing to give a pass to Russian imperialist aggression than it is to Western imperialist aggression. Yeah, I mean, there is this slightly weird debate around Russia in, in politics in general and on the, the left, not just here, but, but, you know, worldwide. I mean, I think it, someone, uh, it may have been Glenn Greenwald, but I might be wrong, re referred to it as McCarthyite to denounce Russia. Like, but Russia's not left-wing and hasn't been since 1991 to, you know, to park an argument about whether or not it was truly a communist state to begin with for another time. It, is it weird? But I think what I find slightly strange is there are, there is a very legitimate argument to be made that Stop the War actually merely protests Western foreign policy rather than advocating for peace however it feels that a lot of people are making fun of stop the war because the real terrifying question is it's very easy to work out what part of the solution which would make things better in Syria is it's a no-fly zone however Russia doesn't want a no-fly zone are we suggesting we should shoot down Russian planes because that means we are suggesting we should be willing to go to the brink of the third world war that is a decision which I think a lot of people instinctively recoil from, in my view, rightly so. And it does feel like some of the pointing and laughing at Stop the War was one Boris making a partisan joke at the expense of Jeremy Corbyn, who of course is its founder, and the other is it it's something that people can go, lol, lol, they're being hypocritical, without kind of engaging in the terrifying question of 
what do you do about Putin's Russia? Yeah, it does remind me about the discussions over last time we went round about whether or not we should bomb ISIS in Syria as well as Iraq. So no one had a problem with having in Iraq because we were invited to do so by a democratically elected government. The problem is we don't recognise Assad's regime. But there was this sort of like, oh, you baby killers. Oh, you know, if we're going to do um, go and bomb uh, foreign countries, people will die. And there was this sort of bizarre idea that it, that that was the option, right? The, the 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 choice we were making was between like utopia and bombing children, and it was like, well, no, children are going to get bombed either way. The question is whether or like which one of the two horrible outcomes you think is is the best one, and that's I think that's where we are at the moment. Is is there is a real kind of I think still some on the left are still thinking that if we don't get involved, there won't be a war. But it's not Iraq again, right? It's just not. It's a completely different situation. Yes, but I think one of the problems in the Syrian intervention, I say this as someone who, who did think in 2013 when the uh, chemical weapons were used, that was a, a time for intervention, um, is that at every stage in Syria, it has been a debate discussed with reference to another conflict. In 2013, it was discussed in reference to Iraq. And now, weirdly, it's being discussed in reference to Syria in 2013, at a time when there was still, not necessarily one which was wholly desirable, but yeah, the, 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 some kind of opposition, some kind rebel of opposition movement that, that you could, could kind of point to yeah. and go, right, so, so a victory scenario is that when the music stops, these people are in charge, right? There is no longer really a situation in Syria where there is a serious force who you can ever imagine having a legitimate monopoly of violence, which is basically the iron test of whether or not you're a state, uh, which anyone thinks is desirable, right? We are kind of at a point where, oh, is it Assad or is it ISIS? Everyone then goes, oh, we don't want either, but Putin wants Assad, so what are you going to do about Putin? And the, the difficulty is a lot of Labour MPs in particular, I think rightly so, believe that their party's conduct and the way they voted in 2013 was wrong. And it was the wrong decision. And then it has plunged the region into further chaos. However, I think a lot of people are then responding by going, what we need to do is we need to have 2013 solution. It feels to me entirely possible that 2013 was, was the last moment, or perhaps even maybe 2012, 2011 was the, the last moment I, yeah, in terms of intervening in, not 2011, but like right at this kind of start oh, of yeah, the Oh yeah, I remember Arab doing Spring. an event, at the, uh, yeah, when we when we talked to people, I mean this was years ago where someone said we should have intervened 18 months earlier. Oh, it was 2011, wasn't it? Because it was when Hillary Clinton was still Secretary of State. a really State. long yeah. time ago. Um, My problem is that that last debate, I think Cameron completely fudged it. Um, he called it when he didn't really kind of know what was going on. And then as soon as he lost it, he kind of went, well, then like the case closed, we're never going to talk about it again, uh, which I think was a problem. And then my problem with the, the most recent vote was everybody seemed to want to agree on bombing ISIS because we could, everybody could agree they were the bad guys, right? But essentially at that point, if you bomb them, you were bombing to prop up President Assad because they were the people presenting the kind of, that would inevitably strengthen his position. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's a morass. And I think that probably arguing over who's doing what in terms of waving placards is a, is one of those therapeutic debates that everybody can have that avoids having the one to which no one has any answers. So you asked us, you probably regret asking us because we've depressed you. Sorry. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by Helen Lewis and me, Stephen Bush, and produced by India Bork. 
You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons.